Welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I am delighted to be joined by John Kemp, the Senior Energy and Commodities Analyst from Thomson Reuters. Um, John, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for the invitation uh, to join you and your listeners today, Seth. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about the energy crunch, how long it might last, all the factors that are kind of keeping prices abnormally high. Um, but I thought before we dive in to, to all those BT questions, uh, I, I know you have a very big following and lots of people in the energy world know who you are, but for the benefit of those who, who might be a bit new to all this, just maybe give us the kind of elevator pitch of your CV, what you've been doing in energy all these years and how you came to be where you are. Well, I started my career at a small consulting company called Oxford Analytica way back in 1996-97 as a very junior and inexperienced analyst focusing on trade and finance. And covering oil was then only a very small part of my job. Um, But the first 12 months included the East Asian financial crisis and then the Russian debt default, um, which sent oil prices down to less than $10 a barrel in late 1998. So I got a bit of a baptism of fire in the cyclical nature of the oil industry. Um, in 2001, I switched to Semper Metals, which was a physical trading firm, um, which was also trading on the London Metal Exchange. Um, my focus was on industrial metals, um, but oil was a big part of my brief. Um, and I was there when prices spiked to almost $150 a barrel, uh, which is about $180 a barrel in today's money, um, in June, July 2008. Um, and then later that year, I moved to Reuters, um, where oil and other energy markets became the central focus of my work. Um, and since then, I've I've been there through three price slumps in 2009, 2014, 15, and 2020, and three big rises in 2011, 2017, and now again in 2021, 22. So, you know, very much in the 25 years of analysing and writing about oil and other energy markets, I think the most important thing I've learned is their inherently cyclical nature. High prices beget low prices, booms beget slumps. Um, And I'm very much a strong believer that, you know, violent prices, violent price cycles have been the defining characteristic of the oil industry since its inception in the 1860s. And so I always try and put cyclical behaviour at the centre of my market analysis. Um, uh, you know, we've seen over the last 150 years repeated attempts to tame the oil price cycle and other energy cycles through market management and production sharing agreements. And every one of those has eventually ended in failure. And I think there's no reason to expect that the future will be any different. So, yeah, I'm an analyst um, with 25 years experience in this market. And a really strong believer in a cyclical approach to analysis. I think the the biggest mistake that people often make is to sort of naively extrapolate that if the market is tight today, it will remain tight for the foreseeable future. Um, Or if the market is in a slump, it will remain stuck in a slump for a very long period of time. I mean, in reality, you know, that's not how markets work. So I'm I'm a big, a big sort of um, believer in a cyclical approach. Yeah, yeah, fascinating because you only really—it's um, it, kind of a, a human nature to get get caught in the moment and to think that things will never change. Um, but but this 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 energy crunch that we're living through at the moment, 
um, does it is it just another one then? Do you think that the cyclicality will kind of work its way through and we'll get back to some semblance of normality, or or are there reasons to think that this one's a little bit different? I mean, I think so. Uh, I think it's a another price cycle. Um, what I think is different about this one is that you had an exceptionally large and rapid slump in demand in the first half of 2020 caused by the pandemic, which was um, arguably the steepest decline in demand that you had seen for over 80 years, maybe over 100 years, maybe ever in the history of the oil industry. It depends a little bit like, you know, whether you focus on the magnitude of the slump or the speed or both. But 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 on any measure, you saw an exceptionally large hit to demand in the first half of 2020. Um, you've then seen an exceptionally large response on the supply side in the second half of 2020, which has caused the markets to tighten significantly over 2021, and that's carrying on into 2022. Um, and that's kind of very normal behaviour. That's exactly what we would see in any price cycle. I think what I would say is different this time is, one, the depth of, you know, this has been a very extreme price cycle, a very extreme slump in consumption, followed by, you know, quite a quite a rapid um, tightening of the market. And the second thing that I think is really important is that it has crossed a whole range of commodities. So it's not just, this isn't just an oil price cycle, which is, for example, what we had in 2008. This is oil and gas and then leading on into sort of coal and electricity as well so i think there are you know yes this is a normal cycle it's just a particularly exaggerated one that's kind of reassuring because um there's been there's quite a lot of doom and gloom in the energy markets and a lot of people talking about how this one is kind of very different and it will last for a lot longer um, do you concur that it's 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 going to take a lot longer to reach uh, equilibrium or might we be kind of looking back on some of the slightly more alarmist analysis in sort of six months and saying, well, actually, things really have settled down now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so the best way to answer that, I think, is probably think about what we were talking about in the middle of 2020. Um, we were, you know, prices had slumped, you know, take oil as a stand, as, as, as perhaps the market that we're all most familiar with. I mean, prices had slumped down into $20 a barrel. There was a massive buildup of inventories and everyone was saying, oh, this is going to take a very, very long time um, to correct. Um, fast forward 12 months and inventories were already well below average prices were already um at their long term average and climbing above it so markets do actually uh you know do actually transition or correct faster than perhaps people expect you've seen the same thing in the gas market too where we had you know this huge amount of excess inventory in the middle of 2020 but by the summer of 2021 people are already starting to to become concerned and then panic about um, shortages um, in the forthcoming winter. So markets can adjust remarkably quickly. And I think the thing that I would say is we, we need to be very careful about just sort of projecting and assuming that, that, that these markets are going to remain very tight um, for an extended period. I, you know, I think they will be quite tight in 2022. 
Um, but when we look, when we push our analysis forward to 2023, I think we're likely to see more of a response from the production side. The other thing that we have to bear in mind, of course, is that you know um, one of the major sources of, of, of volatility in our markets is the macro economy. Um, now, at the moment, we've seen you know a, a remark. You know, we, again, we saw a very very steep recession. Um, but it was very quick, um, and we've seen the economy rebounding very rapidly um, in the second half of 2020. 2021 was very strong growth. Um, in many areas, um, all of the excess capacity has been reabsorbed. Uh, we're seeing quite a lot of inflationary pressure um, uh, you know, in the economy. In the short term, you know, the, 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 the cycle looks relatively you know relatively benign but again if we start to think about what the what the world might look like in 2023 we need to start pricing in at least the possibility of a, of a cyclical slowdown whether that is you know whether that is an outright recession um, or whether it's just a sort of a, a mid-cycle slowdown in growth and again if, if either of those occurred that would promote um, a much more uh, rapid um, rebalancing of commodity markets. That's making me wonder whether we might see a kind of overreaction either from the supply side or even from the policy side um, in anticipation of kind of prolonged high prices and then the kind of this macroeconomic slowdown you've just described kind of takes people a little bit by surprise and you have a double whammy of kind of oversupply and um yeah very slow growth is that is that a real danger do you think for 2023 yeah i think so i think it's certainly a scenario that i'd want to i'd want to put on the you know i'd want to put on the table um you know policy makers so you know the the, the thing is people you know, as I said, I've, I've, I've described the problem of naive projection of current conditions into the future. Um, and we can all criticise it, but but it happens and it happens on the consumer side. So, you know, in 2008, um, you know, consumers felt that, you know, they were entering a period of high oil prices forever. And they started making um, decisions based on that. You started seeing changes, for example, in the way that airlines um, airlines drew up their schedules. Um, you tend to find that it happens with producers. So, you know, um, the at the moment, you know, most producers are really worried about they don't want to add too much production because they are worried about, you know, the memories of a slump of last year are still very fresh. So the whole focus is on capital discipline, etc. But of course, if you don't add the production, if you don't respond to higher prices by adding production, the price will carry on rising and it'll carry on rising and carry on rising until either um, you get an e eventual production response, at which point it will tend to be an overreaction to the, to the extremely high level of prices, or you will start seeing demand destruction, or you will start seeing a response from policymakers, or you could get all three. So in a sense, I think there's a real possibility that, you know, the, 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 the tight markets of 2022 and the likelihood of quite high prices this year is exactly creating the conditions for the subsequent cyclical downturn. Whether that happens in 2023 or 2024 is probably an open question. Um, but I would, you know, absolutely that, you know, we're, we're already, 
um, you know, the price of oil is already above its long term average in real terms. Um, so and the price of gas and coal, yes, both prices have come down a bit, you know, quite substantially, really, f- compared with their highs in sort of September, October. But they are still at exceptionally high levels. So I would expect that, you know, we are we are we are creating today the conditions that will lead to the next phase of the cycle, 2023-2024. Wow. Okay. And and what do forward markets tell us? Is this is this being kind of priced in, or is it something that the that the kind of trading sentiment is not yet reflecting kind of in futures prices for kind of the major futures hubs for oil, gas, and uh- coal? Uh, so I, I haven't sort of looked recently at the at the, at the very far forward prices for, um, for for gas and coal. Certainly in the oil market, um, you know, prices the forward prices are sort of fairly close to their long term average, which is which is what you would expect. Which is that you know when the mar- that the market is pretty well anchored and has been anchored for the last four, five, six years at around seventy dollars a barrel. Um, which is very close to the long term average. And what the market is saying is, you know, we think that, you know, there will be the market will cycle, but it's going to cycle around about this level. Um, and and I would expect that to continue um, in the case of um, coal, for example, you're seeing, you know, at the moment, um, Chinese futures prices, which I tend to use as a bit of a benchmark, are have returned to basically the top of their historic range. And you've, you've had quite a lot of emphasis from the government about the importance of trying to stabilise prices at a relatively high level. They want to give the coal mining companies an incentive to, to boost production, to um, increase investment and to, to secure supplies at least over the next sort of 24 to 36 months. So you know, prices there are, are state are high but stable, sort of $110 a ton. Um, uh, gas prices, again, very, very high at the moment. But, you know, I would expect, you know, something more like reversion to to long term means um, as 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 the as the market sort of, um, uh, you know, as as we move away from this sort of immediate scarcity this winter. Let's talk a bit more about China. Um, they have kind of competing priorities uh, at a kind of policy level. We, we've seen there's a kind of clean air initiative that, that drove the switch from coal to gas. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that's that's really kind of impacted production of some energy intensive products and materials, particularly um, like in aluminium smelting. Uh, how, how do you see those contentions playing out uh, in this uh, in the context of this kind of wider macroeconomic panorama? Uh, are we going to see? And of course, the Olympics coming up as well, the Winter Olympics. Do you see like clean air being sort of relegated beneath other priorities, such as economic growth in China? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think the important thing when when we talk about China is to try and make to de-exoticize it. So I think we have this sort of. Um, I think we have this mental image of, you know, Xi Jinping or whoever happens to be the current president of China, you know, sitting in a room with a bunch of levers, sort of micromanaging the economy um, with incredible precision. 
um, because you know the perception is it's a state-directed economy. The reality is, as you pointed out, it's a lot messier than that. They have bad, you know, they have incomplete information about what's happening. Um, the economy doesn't always respond to the directives and incentives that the, the central government has set because different provinces want, to, you know, have their own priorities, etc. So. I think the thing is, you know, one way of dealing with that is to say, imagine that instead of it's Xi Jinping uh, sitting in the Forbidden City, imagine that it's Joe Biden or Boris Johnson or, or, or the, you know, the, the head of the European Commission. They have exactly the same problem. All of these policymakers have exactly the same problems. You know, Xi Jinping has committed to this transition to a cleaner, uh, a cleaner future. Um, there is a there is a commitment to um, peaking uh, peaking peaking uh, coal uh, consumption. There's a, a commitment to peaking emissions. There's a commitment to a path to net zero. These are all long term aspirations um, which have strong domestic political um, foundations. They're also great in terms of they 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 great diplomatically. They they buy China a lot of a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, positive coverage on the diplomatic circuit but that has to be balanced against the fact that you know you have um the economy is still very heavily reliant upon coal coal is the one um, energy source that you have in abundance domestically um reducing uh your your consumption of coal in favor of gas um it will increase your reliance on imports um and you need to keep the lights on. You know, China has a very long, very cold winter in the northern half of the country. And, you know, it's imperative that the lights stay on. It's imperative that you keep um, that you keep um, both power and heating affordable. Um, and they're exactly the same. They're exactly the same challenges that are currently facing Joe Biden. You know, Joe Biden has this plan, you know, um, to move away from fossil fuels. Um, but, you know, he's suddenly become very worried about the rising price of gasoline and he wants to make sure that that remains affordable for American motorists. And suddenly there's this, you know, how do we get more how do we get more production um, domestically and from OPEC? So, yeah, I think there is. A, I think the Chinese are, are struggling with some very um, inconsistent um, policy objectives, particularly in the short term. Um, there's a really difficult question about um, the speed and trajectory by which you try and achieve these. Um, but I think his, I think you know the the problems that that China and China's President Xi Jinping have are exactly the same problems that are being played out in Washington and London. The the thing that probably makes them a little bit different is that in China's case, you know, you have an abundant domestic source of energy, coal, which is something that you need that you have you have indicated that you will move away from um, and how do you do that without increasing your reliance on on imported gas and that's the reason why i think you know the chinese are so keen um, on developing renewables um, uh, wind solar and also nuclear sources to try and get away from that awkward dilemma of domestic coal versus imported gas yeah, I think people tend to forget that China has, I think, more wind and solar capacity than any other country in the world by a significant margin. And is it the third largest nuclear power producer in the world? 
I'd have to look, but I mean, it's um, it's certainly got massive, and it's it's the it's it's the country that has the biggest growth ambitions for nuclear. Um, they've got a whole raft of of of, um, of new reactors p- planned and in construction. Um, so the Chinese have, you know, the Chinese are unequivocally committed um, to substantial growth in nuclear at a time when you know it's being it's being phased out in Europe and 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 it's sort of um, it's becoming obsolescent in the United States. Yeah, I, I, and yet, of course, these this will take. A very long time to really move the needle on the energy balances in China, and we've seen Chinese state-run and independent energy companies signing some really significant long-term deals with U.S. LNG exporters, and that seems to have transcended the kind of geopolitical cold war that's been described between Beijing and Washington. Um, I, I thought that was quite, quite, quite interesting, and and um, and of course it's and and it, and it speaks to that that dilemma that Biden is facing around, you know, uh, reducing fossil fuel dependence. But it's kind of a key lever in the U.S. foreign policy armory. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I think there's 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 a couple of really interesting things going on here. Um, and I think you know, there's 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 the U.S.-China relationship, which is essentially one of you know confrontation um, at the policy level, um, but at the trade level, the ties are actually becoming tighter. And you know, as you highlight, you know, one of the specific areas is LNG. Now, I think from the American perspective, the view is LNG is a relatively safe thing to export. We're not. It's not, you know, we're not we're not giving China, you know, high technology that could boost their military industrial complex. Um, I think from the American perspective, there is a sense of, look, you know, increasing China's dependence on U.S. gas exports actually gives us leverage. You know, it's a potential future source of leverage. It's and, and as I say, it's not a it's not a strategically dangerous commodity to send to China. But look at look at it from Beijing's point of view. You could argue that that dependency cuts both ways. That actually, if you if you make the entire American oil and gas sector heavily dependent on being able to export large volumes of LNG. Um, that actually helps create a lobbying group within the United States that that has a vested interest in a very stable trade relationship. Um, so, so that I think you know there is an interesting question here about how the how the geostrategic or you know the 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 the, 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 the diplomatic and military competition um, goes hand in hand with. Um, you know, with with an increasingly dense trade relationship, especially in energy. Um, then the other one that I think is kind of interesting is 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 the issue of um, uh, gas exports to to Europe. Um, and again, yes, you can clearly see that on the one hand, you know, the the the, the uh, both the Europeans and the Americans are, you know, and the Biden administration are committed to these these ambitious these net zero goals and ambitious um, reduction in the use of all fossil fuels, including ultimately natural gas. But at the same time, you know, there is a clear um, there is a clear interest, a commercial interest in maximizing um, uh, exports of American LNG. Um, I guess you square that circle by saying American LNG displaces Russian pipeline gas. Um, that too then becomes a little bit complicated because the grand strategy 
um, in Washington is ultimately to try to to prize apart Russia and China, you know, in the same way that Kissinger sort of um, improved relations with China in order to isolate the Russians. The current strategy is to is ultimately to improve relationships with Russia in order to isolate the Chinese, who are the primary American strategic competitor. Um, that is proving, you know, quite difficult, as you can see at the moment with the problems over Ukraine. Um, and it's also quite difficult if you're competing head to head with Russia um, on one of the few, you know, one of the few commodities that, that generates, you know, a large part of the country's export earnings. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting observation. And, and just kind of thinking about Russia, um, and, and Gazprom, uh, how would you describe their behaviour at the moment with regards to their use of, of, of gas, uh, perhaps as a political weapon or tool, as it's been described? Is, is Russia behaving or is Gazprom behaving as a, a rational economic actor? Or do you think there's substance to these claims that, that, that their gas really has been weaponized by, by Russia and by I, Moscow? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, the the... The high level decision making, um, you know, at a strategic level involves a handful of people in the Kremlin. And while it's possible that, you know, um, the CIA and GCHQ might have a mole um, or might have some means of eavesdropping on those conversations, um, the rest of us certainly don't. So we're not privy to what goes on. My sense is that that that. If you look at the European gas crisis that we've had over the last six months, we don't we can explain it perfectly. It, we, we have a perfectly rational explanation that's grounded in the fact that we had a, a global glut of gas in 2020. We had the price slump. We had the declining in gas production. We then had a very cold winter in 2020, 2021, which led to a much faster depletion of inventories than people were anticipating. Then fast forward to the summer, um, we had a period of, of very slack wind. So we had low wind generation and and we burned through the we, we didn't we didn't rebuild gas inventories as fast as expected. So that created the conditions for uh, you know for the very tight market that we've seen. Yes, uh, you know, Russian gas flows have been you know close to their contractual minimums um and they haven't been they haven't been making very large discretionary spot sales um is that a geostrategic play or is that just what you would expect from you know a very large supplier um with a dominant position in a market i mean you could say the same about opec i mean you know opec is not offering large amounts of discretion, you know, we've got oil prices well above their long-term average. Um, OPEC is not rushing to boost production because all that would do is crush the price. I mean, so I can, I can create an argument. I can, I can explain the, the, the European gas crisis at the moment based on a series of fundamental factors and rational commercial behavior by Gazprom. And I don't need to posit the idea that that, that Vladimir Putin um, is 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 personally controlling the flow of gas to achieve some geostrategic aims. Um, uh, so I I don't tend to sort of you I don't tend to rely on that explanation too much. 
I think what is probably true is that the Russians are very keen to get, you know, authorization for Nord Stream 2 to begin operating. Um, the United States opposed the construction of Nord Stream 2. Um, and when it couldn't prevent the construction of Nord Stream 2, it's been lobbying very hard for Nord Stream 2 not to be authorised. Um, I think the Russians are concerned that they don't want to have spent all this time building this pipeline and find that they can never use it. So I think there is a clear linkage from Russia's perspective that if you want more gas you know, um, you authorise that you, you allow the pipeline to go into operation. Um, so in that sense, I think there is there is a there is a diplomatic linkage. Um, but I'm not sure I would blame that for the whole of the European gas crisis, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100 percent. Yeah. I, I, if anything, maybe it's been a little bit opportunistic, but then that could be like economic opportunity rather than political opportunity. Absolutely. And I think the question actually and to throw this forward a little bit, you know, the worst of in some ways, you know, the Europeans didn't blink um, back in September, October, when when prices were getting really high and people were really worried about running out of gas. Um, the Europeans did not authorise the pipeline and they stuck with that all the way through December. Um, now we've got to January, the, the gas market situation is looking a lot less stressed than it was before. Um, and obviously, you know, provided there isn't a, a cold, you know, provided that we don't get a long period of very cold temperatures, it looks like Europe um, will end the end, you know, we'll get to the end of March and into April with, you know, somewhat comfortable gas stocks. So in some ways, you could say that the, the, the Russians may have missed their, mo their point of maximum leverage, um, you know, that they may have been too slow. Right. And we have an armada of US LNG vessels kind of docking at LNG terminals across Europe as we speak almost. Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways, you know, if the Russians couldn't secure, couldn't force the approval of that pipeline, um, you know, in November, December time, um, they're unlikely to be much more successful in February and March, provided that the weather remains fairly close to its sort of long term average. I mean, so far this winter, it's been very, very mild, um, you know, which is which is what I think has taken a lot of the heat out of the. Oh, sorry, that's a terrible pun, uh, which has <laughs> taken a lot of the um, uh, the upward pressure out of gas and electricity prices. I like that. The cold took the heat out of something. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and it's physically correct as well. Um, uh, but also, like, there, there's the question of, um, uh, like, R Russia's ability to, to meet domestic demand, which doesn't go, I think, reported enough because, you know, Russia is an enormous territory and its gas network spans you know, several time zones. Um, and, of course, you know, keeping Russian the Russians themselves you know, warm and economically productive has to be uh, uh, up there as like a number one economic priority as as well as obviously, you know, maximizing export opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw, we've seen the same thing. We've seen the same thing in the United States and in, in Europe. I mean, both during the cold snap back in February 2021, um, and more recently, when prices were rising, there was a lot of pressure to say, look, we need to keep the gas at home. You know, we need to stop exports. We need to prioritize domestic customers. 
Um, and you've seen some of the same pressures emerging in Europe, you know, talk about, well, you know, if there was a crisis, um, would the European single energy market survive or would would governments all prioritise, um, you know, domestic consumers? Exactly the same thing that we've had in vaccinations as well. Um, you know, in a crisis, governments will always prioritise, um, you know, domestic consumers and domestic businesses. And, and you know, the Russians may well have been doing the same thing. I mean, we don't have, um, part of the problem is we don't have detailed statistics on, on Russia's domestic storage situation. Um, so I think that invites a lot of speculation about, you know, quite how much their inventory position, actually, you know, their domestic inventory position actually is. Yeah, indeed. Um, let, let's bring it back to Europe for a bit, um, John, and, and like the energy transition. Um, I, I, I've personally been quite surprised by the kind of resolute policy stance that we've seen throughout this gas crisis, that the solution to this is not uh, more reliance on gas. It's, it's to uh, kind of maximise domestic production of renewable energy sources, which is predominantly wind in northwest Europe. Do you, do you see that commitment kind of unwavering throughout the kind of ups and downs of the market? Um, yeah, to some extent. I mean, the, the, the European Commission, I mean, for better or worse, um, European institutions are not particularly susceptible to um, popular democratic pressure. Um, and in this particular instance, I think that means that they are trying to ride through um, some of the agitation to sort of scale back the the or, or to slow down the energy transition process. Um, and to sort of and the, the argument is well, the solution to to a fossil fuel. Uh, a sharp rise in the price of fossil fuels is to accelerate our shift away from them. Um, whether that is sustainable, I don't know. Um, you know, you are, um, you know, domestic domestic gas and electricity bills are going to rise quite a lot um, over the course of the next twelve months, and it's not. I mean, look, you know, if this is a fairly normal price cycle, you know, we're going to go through a period of 12, 24 months of very high bill prices. If governments can kind of um, can tough that out, you get to a period where, you know, um, hopefully gas and electricity prices are, are lower. Um, but what worries me a little bit is that the there is an unwillingness to really acknowledge the very large costs implied by the energy transition. Um, it involves an enormous amount of capital expenditure. Um, and that's not just building new wind turbines and installing solar power um, and, and buying a bunch of batteries. That's also, you know, upgrading buildings. It's installing more insulation. It's taking out gas central heating from tens of millions of homes across the continent and replacing it with electric heating. Um, now, all of these things are possible, um, but they involve very large amounts of expenditure and they involve upfront capital spending um, to, to generate a saving in operational spending. Um, and, you know, they take they naturally occur very slowly. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I really think that European policymakers sometimes are unwilling to be completely honest about the costs of the energy transition. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think we're 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 seeing that. Um, certainly in the uk now um uh, with the uh, the kind of conversation around the sort of missing money in 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 the retail market and estimates of sort of 20 billion pounds uh, of losses that have been racked up because of this price cap and, and there's this kind of massive political argument around you know how much can we actually heap onto consumers uh, to, to to recover some of those costs um, I mean, in in the UK specifically, how uh, how how do you see this this kind of problem playing out? We've got these kind of losses racking up in the retail segment um, at a time when really like more costs are going to be heaped onto consumers to cover the things that you've you described. Well, so I think again in, in the UK context, it, I think you've got two separate issues here. You've got a short-term issue and a, and a long-term issue. So, the short-term issue is that um, you know we saw this you know um, you know Europe-wide escalation in in gas and electricity prices, um, which has not been passed on to bill payers in the United Kingdom because of the price cap. Um, but as a result, you know, a large number of the retailers have gone bankrupt. Um, and that those 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 costs have eventually got to be paid. Um, so the real question is, do you try to recover them all very quickly um, by allowing prices to rise dramatically um, from the 1st of April and remain very high over the next 12 to 18 months? Or do you try to sort of um, spread the pain out um, by uh, over over multiple years um, by by allowing um, the the electricity, the electricity and gas suppliers to borrow money? Um, from the banks and then to you know to gradually recover the, the 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 bill costs over say a sort of three to five or even seven year period so that's that's the short term problem the longer term problem is that you know the underlying the the, the price of the, the the government's policies um the transition related policies um account for i think it's now about a quarter of the domestic bill um, and they are likely to increase further going forward. And that's only the beginning of the cost because, you know, the problem in the UK and it's not, a, you know, it's a very specific UK problem is we have very badly insulated homes, which are incredibly energy inefficient. So, you know, over the course of the next 20, 30 years, we need households to spend, you know, quite large amounts of money on upgrading insulation on new heating and hot water systems. Um, and none of this is cheap. Um, you know, this is very expensive. And, uh, you know, there's an understanding that it needs to happen, but no real, no real thought about how you get there. Um, one of the problems is that, you know, um, some of the, you know, the poorest uh, poorest members of society live in some of the of the most energy inefficient properties. So the people, um, you know, who we most need to upgrade their insulation, to upgrade their heating and, and hot water systems are the least able to pay for it. 
and we still do not have a a plan for how, you know for how to make that happen yeah yeah and all, all these big questions just seem to get deferred and um every kind of policy initiative to actually do something about this kind of gets gets scrapped after 18 months the, yeah so i think the interesting question is if you look back uh, and i spend a lot of time reading history um about about the energy industry if you look at the way that so where we have had um new technologies or plans that have involved large amounts of investment um and i'm thinking here the rollout of the gas network or the rollout of the electricity network um the way that we have generally done that is through cross subsidization um so what we've essentially said is there is a large group of customers and they could be rural electricity you know they could be rural households they could be poorer households that we've come up with some mechanism whereby effectively you know they are connected to the gas and electricity network um on non-commercial terms you know we would never on a commercial basis we would never have put the electricity network into many of the rural areas of britain but we decided that it was a social priority that everybody should have access to electricity and therefore uh the electricity distribution companies were were told to to connect up those customers and then the price was just smeared across everybody's bill and i think um history suggests that we're going to have to do something very similar if we want if we actually want you know um to to substat you know if we want to upgrade for example insulation um in in domestic buildings if we want people to install very um highly efficient uh heating and hot water systems if we want them to install you know electricity rather than gas cookers there's going to have to be some mechanism to help you know um poorer households do that um and that you know that in that basically means that richer households um have to provide some degree of cross subsidy it's a but it's a politically tricky one to do well well on that do you, do you think that um adding a levy to the electricity bill or the gas bill is perhaps not not the ideal mechanism for it like this the kind of the orders of magnitude of greater capital allocation required might be best leveraged via uh, the, the the tax system yeah, I mean, it's got to be, that's the thing. I mean, it's got to be paid for, whether you pay for it through general taxation or you pay for it through it through bill levies. I mean, the problem with a bill levy is it's very regressive. Um, that, you know, that, 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 that trying to, to raise the necessary finance by putting a levy onto gas and electricity bills is incredibly regressive um, because the poorest section of society um, spends the largest proportion of its income um on 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 utilities um it's obviously much more progressive to 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 have it paid for through income tax 
Um, the problem is that politicians don't like that. When it when it goes on income tax, it becomes too visible and it becomes politically contentious. So the reason that politicians like putting it on the bill is that they can say it's got nothing to do with us. It's the electricity company. I mean, you're already seeing that with all sorts of things like the social obligation. So, for example, you know the 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 discounted. Um, the the discounted electricity prices for poorer households are paid for, um, you know, through a through a surcharge on bills, um, and that's so that's those social. Uh, the, the difficulty with that is that it means that the people that get paid that get hit the hardest are the not quite poor. So you 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 try to protect those at the very bottom end of the income scale. But then the people who get hit hardest are the people who fall just outside that, you know, wherever you put that cutoff point. The people whose income is just above that level suddenly find that their bills jump quite significantly. Um, so it's, it's really difficult. As I say, I, personally, if I was doing it, I would I would I would I would fund a lot of this stuff through general taxation. Um, and specifically through income taxation, but there's a good reason why <laughs> why politicians don't want to do that. Uh, it's it's safer to sort of hide it in the form of bill levies. Yeah, and and I've I've been kind of following this debate for. I mean, I I think I've, I've been writing about energy since 2008, and as, and as far back as I can remember, this debate has been kind of active. You know, taxation versus levies. And I, I remember one of the arguments against taxation was that it's much more susceptible to political intervention if a future chancellor of the exchequer decides that oh, we don't like all these kind of red lines on our on our books, then they can just kind of strike it off because it's it, it's it's within their remit as the chancellor. And so that adds a kind of political risk element to investment decisions based upon tax rebates or whatever um that needs to be recouped over 20 years and they need that certainty and having it on the bills it's kind of much more difficult to intervene because it gets grandfathered and therefore you have security of return on investment over the required amortization period yeah and i think that's that it's i mean i think there's probably an element of special pleading in those kind of arguments but i think there's also an element of truth um, that it is a way of trying to uh, trying to um, create irreversible commitments that politicians can't change their minds about. I mean, again, if we look at it historically, um, when when gas and electricity supplies were rolled out, and when they were rolled out to what you might call um, you know non commercial customers, i.e you know, rural customers, it was done through the mechanism of, you know, local local distribution companies. It wasn't the government that paid for you to have, you know, an electricity connection. It was, the you you know, it, the, the, the electricity connection was provided by a local distribution company. And the deal was that, that, that they would put it, that you would pay exactly the same, you know, you could be sitting in, in rural Shropshire or in rural Cumbria um, and your bill was exactly the same as somebody sitting in the centre of London, even though it cost dramatic, cost vastly more um, to provide the service to you. So, you know, yes, there's a, there is a sense that, that hiding some of these charges and subsidies um, on the bill is 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 a 
politically is an easier route politically uh, and we're certainly what's what we've done historically yeah very true um john i feel like we could go on all night long but uh, i'm aware that we've been rambling on for an hour nearly and uh, i only asked for half an hour so <laughs> maybe maybe we should wrap things up um but it's it's been it's been fascinating maybe we can get you back on again uh yeah, maybe in, later on and, and also like as as kind of the market moves forwards and we can kind of take stock of what we discussed and and, and see how things have changed um you can you can we can we can take stock and find out where all of my predictions have gone horribly wrong in six months time <laughs> well what do they say predictions are never right and if they are it's for the wrong reasons right <laughs> yeah absolutely brilliant um well that's great john thanks for your time just a little reminder um sign up to uh, email updates uh, if you're listening to this at www.energyflux.news to get a heads up of um, all future episodes and a whole lot more um john thanks again for your time it's been a real pleasure and um tune in this time next week for another edition thanks a lot <laughs>